Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to Luke chapter 20, which is where we will be this morning, picking things up in verse 19. Did not plan to have a sermon about government on Memorial Day, so please don't read into that. It just happened to be where the, uh, the sermon series fell uh, as we are working through the book of Luke. But uh, as we talk about Jesus' words here this morning, and we talk about government, I was thinking about the relationship that we have to government as Americans today, uh, because it seems like all the conversations I have with people, whether they are liberal or conservative, they are upset. They just seem upset all the time. Everybody's upset. And maybe that's because um, of the, uh, the data found by this Pew Research poll that was done in May of 2021. They've actually been running this same uh, poll dating uh, all the way back into the 50s, um, just trying to gauge how much do Americans trust the government. So the study found in May of 2021 that among left-leaning li- liberals, liberals, the liberals, among, I've been on vacation, all right, uh, among left-leaning liberals, only 31% of them trust the government, okay? Among moderate liberals, so they're more to the center of the left, the number jumps up to 40%. Now, the party that doesn't control the presidency tends to not trust the government as much uh, just throughout American history, okay? So as I share the next two percentages, don't be too alarmed, okay? Um, Among moderate conservatives, so center-leaning conservatives, 16% trust the government. And if you want to get down into conservatives who lean to the right, that number is at a whopping 5%. So the average among everybody polled, 24% of Americans trust the government. The only time that that number has been lower is October of 2011, which we were in the middle of a recession. That number got down to 11%. Contrast that with October 15, 1964 where the Pew Research says that 77% of Americans trusted the government. Can you imagine hearing such results from a poll today? That was the peak. If the statistics are right, the odds are is that you are sitting here this morning feeling like you don't really trust the government, okay? Uh, maybe you're part of the 24% that does, but uh, the chances are that a lot of you are sitting here this morning going, eh, don't know, I don't know. And yet you have a Bible in your lap. And what do you do with that? How do these two things connect? I actually fear that many American Christians don't know how to answer that question. They really don't know how to answer the question of how does my view on the government connect with my understanding of my Bible? And I think that this is a devastating reality because... I think a lot of people think my faith informs my politics. It might actually be the other way around. It's your politics informing your faith. That you're approaching the Bible with political eyes instead of approaching politics with biblical eyes. Jesus is here to help us with all of this this morning. And uh, before I read, just a little reminder of where we are at 
when it comes to the narrative of Luke. On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, just as it was prophesied. On Monday, he goes into the temple courts. He makes a scene on Monday of Holy Week. He's flipping tables. He's stopping the train of cattle coming through the court of the Gentiles. And then he begins to teach in the temple and hold court there for about a day at least. In the center of Jewish worship, he authoritatively stands and teaches. And so on the Tuesday of Holy Week, he's teaching. He is contending with the Pharisees. Last week, Pastor David preached on the parable of the wicked tenants, and that parable was a dagger to the heart of the self-righteous religion that the religious elites of Jesus' time were pushing on society. This is what they were teaching. This is what was coming out of the synagogues. So after hearing Jesus uh, tell this parable that was a direct shot at them, they are very upset. They want to lay hands on him. They want him out of the temple, but they can't just attack him. They need a reason. So they're going to try to provoke him with a question, and that's where we pick it up this morning. So Luke 20, starting in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray. Father God, who sent your Son, the Word made flesh. Uh, Let us come to your Bible today, uh, open to having our minds changed by your Word. In fact, we should relish it, because so often our minds are wrong. Silence our agendas this morning. Banish our assumptions this morning, Lord. Cast out any sort of uh, nominal, casual detachment that we would have from your Word. Confound Uh, Lord, our wisdom and replace it with yours. Clear the cobwebs out of our ears. Penetrate, Lord, every corner of our hearts with your word this morning. We know you can and we pray that you will and we are uh, looking for it with anticipation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Obviously, plenty of hostility here coming from the scribes and the chief priests toward Jesus. They want to arrest him. They want to take him to trial. They can't just do that, though, because the people at this point are still very favorable toward Jesus. If they just lay hands on him without cause, the people are going to rise up against the scribes and the chief priests. They can't have that. Uh, Rome won't like that. So they come up with this solution where they are going to do what they've done before, try to trap him. So they send spies to ask him a sincere question, uh, but in reality it is totally insincere and they are trying to, uh, to catch him, right? To, to get him to say something that would justify apprehending him and turning him over to the authorities. So they try to butter him up with some flattery and they ask him a question in verse 22, um, but can we just point out how silly these guys are? Right? I mean, look at verse 21. They asked him this question. Teacher, we know that you speak 
and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So they're kind of buttering him up for the question in verse 22, uh, a question that is meant to trap him and to harm him and, and to, um, to, to put him in a position to be arrested and, and murdered. And, and to get to that question, they, they, they try to flatter him and honestly deal with him in the way that you deal with your naive children when you're trying to dupe them into doing things, right? You know, you're so good at swallowing things. Just swallow this pill and show me how great you are, right? This is what we do with kids. You're the best dishwasher ever. Wash these dishes right now so I can tell everybody how great you are at washing dishes, you know? And often they fall for it. That tactic doesn't usually work on a grown man. It's insulting. Add in the fact that this grown man is God in the flesh. And this attempt to flatter him in order to fool him just looks so feeble. It's so thin. It's so easy to see through. And so they ask him the question in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? This is not a question of do you like taxes or not? Because honestly, that's not a very controversial question. It's not a hard question to answer. Nobody really likes taxes, right? I think even the Son of God could have said, um, no, we don't like taxes. The question's much more electric than that. It's not, do you like taxes? It's, should we pay our taxes? That is a much more lively question. And they say, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So they have made this into a moral issue is it morally right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it right in God's eyes for us to pay taxes to Rome? That is the question that's being asked. None of the flattery has worked on Jesus. He's well aware of the intentions of the, the hearts of these men and that they are there to harm him. And verse 23 tells us this. He perceived their craftiness, which reminds me of Genesis 3 right? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is the same tactics here. This is satanic, and Jesus perceives this as a satanic attempt to destroy him. He knows this behavior is right in line with the crafty serpent who fooled Adam and Eve in the garden in the first place and, and caused them to fall away from God. The wisdom of Christ, though, overcomes the impotent wisdom of men here, and Jesus takes out a denarius, and he holds it up, and he says, whose likeness is on it? And he asks, what is the inscription on it? So let's stop here and do a little bit of background work about this coin that Jesus has taken out and the questions that he's asked about the coin. We know that Rome is the occupying power in Israel. And as citizens of a conquered nation in the Roman Empire, the Jewish people had to pay tax to Rome. There was income tax. There was uh, the, the land tax. There was the import tax. There was the transport tax. But the tax that the Jewish people hated more than any of the other taxes was the poll tax. The poll tax was attached to the census, meaning if you are a citizen in Rome or you live in Rome and you are a male, then you got to pay up. It's a tax that you owed simply for existing in the Roman Empire, for breathing air and taking up space. And every Jewish male on top of all the other taxes they owed, had to pay one denarius a year for the poll tax. And you say, one coin, what's the big deal? Well, it was a day's wages. It was a day of their life. 
one day of your work gone just for existing in Caesar's empire. And the Jewish people hated it. They hated it because the implication was you got to pay to Caesar to live on Caesar's land because Caesar owns that land and Caesar owns the people that live on that land. Well, for the Jewish people, that was a big problem. They didn't look at that land as Roman land. They looked at that land as the land that God gave to Father Abraham. And they saw themselves not as a people for Caesar's possession, as a people for God's own possession, and they lived on that land that was given to them by God. So in light of this, taxes, especially this poll tax, was a constant source of conflict between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire. In fact, 25 years before Jesus' ministry really starts, there was a man named Judas the Galilean who led a revolt, and he said, Jews owe no tax to Rome, and he led a portion of the people to rise up so the religious authorities here are hoping that Jesus will say something similar to what Judas the Galilean had said so then they can say look this man is causing a revolt he needs to be killed and they could turn him over to Rome but Jesus is too wise for this he's wise in how he answers it he's not going to be arrested and turned over to the Romans until his father says it's time and it's only days away at this point but it's still not time So Jesus will not be caught here. He asks for denarius in verse 24. That's the day's wage. That is the coin that a Jew would pay to to fulfill the poll tax. And he says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they say Caesar's. More specifically, it would have had Tiberius Caesar's uh, impression on it because that was the emperor at the time. And it would have said, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. On the other side, it would have had a picture of his mother. And it would have said, high priest, under her, in order to celebrate the peace that Rome had brought to the world. The very existence of this coin would have made the anger of the Jewish people burn. It represented the poll tax they had to pay. That was infuriating enough. But on top of that, the coin itself proclaimed that the Roman emperor was divine. Clear violation of the first commandment that God gave Moses. Plus, the picture on it would have been a violation of the second commandment to them because they didn't just believe you shouldn't make an image out of our God. They believed you should not have an image of any so-called God on anything. So the coin is not just a symbol of Roman occupation, it's a symbol of pagan idolatry. So what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to start another revolt? Is he going to out himself as some sort of insurrectionist? Or will he bow his knee to Caesar and turn his back on the people? Well, of course, he's not going to do either one of those things. They think they've got him caught in that trap. But he says to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar. Well, pay Caesar his coin. Give to Caesar what is due to Caesar. Give to God what is due to God. In other words, obey your government as long as the government doesn't ask you to disobey God. That is not the answer that the spies were expecting. They have no response. They're not able to catch him in the way that they had hoped. All they can really do here at the end of this passage is silently marvel in verse 26 at his wisdom and in how he used it to stop their mouth. The plan has fallen apart. The Lord remains sovereign in the temple. He'll stay as long as he wants. He'll leave when he wants. It's on his terms. 
But what do we learn from this? Well, Jesus' words in verse 25, some of the most famous words he ever spoke, people who are not Christians, who do not know the Bible or read the Bible are familiar with these words. And they're renowned for a reason, because in 17 English words, he gives the church a cornerstone text for a biblical worldview on government and the Christian's relationship to it. And we need it. We need it because, as, as I, I said earlier, I, I fear that so many Americans don't understand how to connect their Bible to their view on government and politics. And so I want to point out three truths we can learn from as we close up from what Jesus says here. And then we'll have a little test at the end to see if we believe them and if we're applying them. So, uh, number one, an unbelieving government is still a legitimate government. It's the first thing I want us to to take from Jesus' words here. An unbelieving government is still a legitimate government. Government is not the idea of man. It's the idea of God. You see the first command for humans to govern in Genesis 1 when uh, Moses writes, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The Lord called Adam to subdue the earth. That's not a well-defined system of government, but it's better than anarchy, okay? No authority is given to um, humanity that ultimately has not come from God. Here we have uh, a mandate for authority and a mandate to use it. Then you keep reading in the book of Romans in the New Testament, there we get a much more well-defined idea of government. And I know sometimes when a pastor reads a cross-reference, you can kind of check out a little bit. Don't check out on Romans 13. Listen to this. Because you can't understand what Jesus is saying in Luke 20, 19-26. You really can't get it. You really can't get, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the God the things that are God's without understanding Romans 13. It's commentary. Romans 13 is like a well-thought-out explanation of Jesus' words in Luke 20. So let's go there. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes... For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. When's the last time you called the IRS ministers of God? Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Which is why I have no problem with us starting our service today honoring those who have given their lives for our country. The governments were put in place by God, created by God, put in place by God. Their officials are servants of God, whether they want to accept that or not. And as servants instituted by God, they should work for the justice and the goodness of their citizens. 
And Paul says at the end of this passage, the most well-rounded passage we have about government in the New Testament, that Christians should pay their taxes. And he tells us that government has a divine origin. And he tells us about the role and the duty of it. Do you notice there's no caveat in all this that says, it's only true if you like the person who's in charge. It's not there. There's no qualifier that says you can ignore all of this if you don't trust the government that's in power. There's no escape clause that says you don't have to be subject to the governing authorities if you don't like them. None of that is there. We talked earlier about the trust level when it comes to government in America. That might be true. Might be very low trust level with the government right now. That doesn't give you an out when it comes to to, um, subjecting yourself to the authority. The Bible does not give us an out. And your reaction might be, well, fine, I'll pay the taxes. But I'm not praying for these people. I'm not going to have any level of love for these people. Well, 1 Timothy 2 would call you to a different way of thinking. When Paul says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Scripture doesn't give us that option either. God mandates that we pray for our leaders with zero qualification of whether or not they're Christian, zero qualification for whether or not we like them. Now, listen, I'm I'm about to say something, and I might say a few things that, that, you know, land firmly upon the toes this morning, okay? This one I think probably will. We have a church, cards on the table. This is, if you've been around us for any amount of time, you probably figured this out. We have more politically conservative people in this church than politically liberal, though we do have politically liberal people in this church as well, and people who are right down the middle and who are moderate and swing voters and, and whatnot. But most of you tend to vote red if we're being honest with ourselves, okay? And so in the four years Donald Trump was president, I had many of you coming to me on a regular basis saying, pastor, you've got to pray for the president. He's under attack from the media. He's under attack from citizens. He's under attack from other people in government. You have to pray for him. But you know, in the last year and a half, I can't count on three fingers the amount of people that have come to me and said, you need to pray for President Joe Biden. We chuckle, but man, do you see how I fear we are not connecting our Bibles to our view of government? Because if we were, wouldn't we feel incredibly burdened to pray for every president? Because this is what the scriptures say we should do. This brings us back to this first truth we're gleaning from Jesus' words in Luke 20, 25. Even if the state, the governing authorities are pagan, even if you don't like them, we still have to subject ourselves to its rule, and we have to pray for the people God has allowed to be in charge or he has placed in charge. The righteousness of the state or the man or the woman that sits in the chair does not dictate your attitude towards the state. The God-given authority of the state and his commands concerning the state, that's what dictates our attitude. An unbelieving government is still a legitimate government. And we must render to Caesar what is Caesar's. This leads us to point number two. A believing Christian should be a good citizen. So an unbelieving government is still legitimate. A believing Christian should be a good citizen. To render to Caesar what is Caesar's means that we are not just begrudgingly cooperative citizens, we are good citizens. To be a good citizen, is it, it takes intentional action. 
And so being subject to the governing authorities doesn't just mean you pay your taxes while cursing these people in your heart and hating them, right? It means we subject ourselves and we live godly lives, believing that as we do it, it will be a witness to the people around us. So that passage in 1 Timothy 2, where uh, we have Paul saying we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions, he goes on to say that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified life. If you have a proper relationship with government as a Christian, where you subject yourself to its authority, you follow the laws of the land, you pay your taxes, you pray for them, this is going to help you lead a life that is peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified. Guess what's not peaceful? The world we live in. Guess what has very little dignity? The world that we live in. The world we live in is not godly. The world we live in certainly isn't quiet. And so if you live this way, Don't you think that your faith and the way of life that flows from that faith is going to stand out? Absolutely it is. Like like shining stars against a, a pitch black night sky, your faith will stand out. And this has to be our disposition. Here's why it, 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 we, we have got to strive to have a proper view of the governing authorities, a proper relationship to those in power. And, and here's why. It's because of what ultimately makes government legitimate. Government is not ultimately legitimate because of elections. We might think that as a democratic society. But it's not ultimately legitimate because of elections. If you believe that, you won't pray for those you didn't vote for because in your mind they're not legitimate. And if you don't think that's true, let's run it back to 2016 after President Trump won the election and there's a bunch of people running around going, hashtag, not my president. And then in 2020, when Joe Biden won, there was a bunch of conservatives running around who were like, well, we can do it too. Hashtag, not my president. Well, it is your president. You can say that all you want, but it is your president. Just because you didn't vote for him doesn't make him illegitimate. And if we believe that, by the way, if we believe that government is only legitimate because of elections, we also won't pray for anyone if we believe they got into office by illegitimate means. Ultimately, though, government is not legitimate because of elections. It's not legitimate because we all need it. That's what Karl Marx said, right? We all just need to be controlled, and that's why the people give the power to the government. The human desire to be governed does not legitimize government. In the end, government is legitimate because there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. God is sovereign over all. The government is his servant and that's why Christians should seek to obey it and pay taxes to it and pray for it because we recognize that it's God's authority that ultimately gives the state its authority. And so it's out of reverence for his authority that we should seek to be good citizens and maintain a good witness in our country. Now, what happens when the government begins to require or restrict things that cause us to be disobedient to God? That leads us to our third truth. Number three, a believing Christian is ultimately accountable to God. Render to God the things that are God's. What do we do when the state says you cannot worship God in the way that he has called us to? 
Well, we get a case study for this in the book of Daniel, don't we? In Daniel 6. The Babylonians who had carried Israel off into exile, they have lost control. They've given way to the Medes and the Persians. There's a new king now. His name is Darius. Darius organizes his kingdoms with different rulers over different parts, and Daniel was one of his key rulers. Daniel had a good relationship with Darius. But the other rulers, they got jealous, so they devised a little plan. They go to Darius and they say, you're such a great king, you should make a law that says nobody can worship anybody but you. And if they do, they ought to be thrown to the lions. So Darius makes this law. What's Daniel going to do? Darius has been a good king to Daniel. Who should Daniel obey, Darius or the Lord? Well, Daniel 6.10 says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so the law is into effect, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel ends up getting thrown to the lion's den for this. He's delivered. That's not the main point. Praise God for that. But the main point here uh, in, in, in my referring to this is not really the outcome. It's the option that Daniel chose to begin with. It was a no-brainer for him. I'll obey the state because God gave it authority. But if the state's limited authority demands that I rebel against God's ultimate authority, I'll choose God no matter the consequence. That was Daniel's attitude. He also, though, notice he went to his house prayed toward Jerusalem as he had done previously. He didn't march down to Darius's office and get down on his knees in front of Darius and say, I'm going to pray to God right here in front of you just to make you mad and stick it in your eye. I'm politically incorrect and I love it. You know what I mean? He didn't do that. Because he wants to live a quiet, godly, dignified life. He went to his house and he kept worshiping the Lord as he had always done. We want to be good citizens but never at the expense of dishonoring God and forsaking our accountability to Him. And yet, as we firmly stand on God's commands and we obey Him, we're careful in our attitude to be like Daniel, obedient to God, but not unnecessarily antagonistic toward the state. He didn't run around bad-mouthing Darius, doesn't attempt to come up with a plan of his own, just practices his faith and deals with the consequences. Peaceful, dignified, godly, even if it means he will suffer, he's not going to compromise his own standing with God by reacting to the state with venom and bitterness. And, and folks, listen, this is where I see so many of us go off the rails these days. We get angry about the things that are happening, we get frustrated about the things that are happening, and we forsake a quiet, dignified, godly life, and we react with venom and bitterness. And I see it on both sides of the aisle. Social media is filled with so many believers who identify with the name of Christ in their profile, but their Facebook and their Twitter and their Instagram posts are just packed with vitriol toward Biden and Pelosi or Trump and DeSantis. And when something terrible happens, the reaction is not to get down on their knees and be a good citizen and to pray. It tends to be, I'm going to scorch the earth online. That wasn't Daniel. And it wasn't Jesus. I don't know how you feel about Joe Biden, and I don't know how you felt about Donald Trump, but let me tell you something. What we have experienced in the last six years in the United States of America is far, far better than our brothers and sisters in the early church ever could have dreamed of. 
The Jewish people who lived under Roman rule gave 30 to 40% of their entire income to the Roman government. Money that was in turn used to strengthen the military that occupied them and to strengthen the Roman pagan cults that were funded by the state that they despised. The Romans put horrible leaders in place over the Jewish people on a regular basis who would act out and do terrible things. For example, one of Herod's sons, was, um, he, he slaughtered thousands of Jewish people for no reason, just because he could, just to show he could. Pilate once had a bunch of Jewish people slaughtered as they were worshiping, and their sacrifices, uh, their blood mixed in with the sacrifices on the altar. Last time I checked, our government was not ordering soldiers to go into Christian churches and, and, and to kill us in the pews. We know nothing of this type of state oppression. And yet, you don't see Jesus calling for political insurrection, even though what the people he's talking to are experiencing is far worse than anything we've experienced. It's the opposite. He's just consistently saying, don't put too much of your attention on this kingdom. Keep your eyes on heaven. Keep your eyes on, on, on the Father. We can look to the early church and, and we can see an example in them of what it looks like to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to render to God's what is God's. Caesar claimed to be divine. Rome started to demand all Roman citizens proclaim Kaiser Kyrios, which meant Caesar is Lord. And when that happened, the government began asking Christians for something they could not give. Taxes the early church could give. Worship they could not. And when the church refused, the Christians were used as human garden lanterns at Emperor Nero's parties. And they were fed to the lions, and they were ripped apart by gladiators for entertainment. But the church stayed steadfast. R.C. Sproul said this was their attitude. Caesar will drive our chariots within the speed limit, but don't ask us to give worship to you. That doesn't belong to you. That belongs to our King, Jesus. But even in the case of the early church, as you read through Acts and early church history, you don't see the church organizing as a political body. It's God's kingdom, God's kingdom, God's kingdom. We'll be as obedient as we can be to the state, but we will not give Caesar what belongs to God, no matter how much we suffer for it. Because we know there's only one we're ultimately accountable to. That was their heart. We need to walk in their footsteps. So much more to say about these issues. We're out of time. I, I hope that you will give heed to Jesus' words and the New Testament words that go alongside them. But I, I do want to close by saying this. It's crucial for us to get this right because I actually believe that political engagement is the number one hurdle to the church's witness in our country today. It's the way we act about politics, man. It's bad. We have got to be better. The world is so tribalistic and polemic about everything. They're hateful about this stuff. Everything's politicized. COVID's politicized. Masks are politicized. Abortion's politicized. LeBron James is politicized. NASCAR's politicized. Disney's politicized. Will Smith smacking Chris Rock is politicized. It's all politicized. If something you love has not been politicized yet, just wait. It will be, and half the country will tell you you're not allowed to like it anymore. It's coming. If Joe Biden tweeted something tonight about how you're a bad person if you don't eat avocados, avocados would be politicized by lunch tomorrow. You'd get a sideways glance from every conservative friend you've got for every bit of guacamole you put in your mouth for about a month until the new thing to get angry about came along. If Donald Trump came out tomorrow and said flannel shirts are woke, every commentator on MSNBC would look like Paul Bunyan. 
You know what I mean? They'd be like, let's get those shirts. Let's make them mad. This is how the world acts. I don't know about you, but man, this week when I saw what happened to those poor children and the people who were there to protect them and educate them down in Texas, it made me sick. It made me sick. It broke my heart. I know it broke your heart. And then you, you get on the internet, and it just takes minutes, minutes for people to start queuing up and to start fighting and to forget about the lives of real humans and to use these children as an opportunity to argue their political agenda. It's so gross it makes you feel like you need a shower after reading a word of it. We can't act like this. This is the way the world acts. And if we come along and we deal with government and politics with the same attitudes and the same venom and the same bitterness, and then we turn around and say, you need our Jesus, do you think that they're really going to believe our Christ makes a difference? We can't hurt the kingdom and the witness of the gospel by allowing ourselves to be consumed by this. So let me throw out a litmus test to close up. Just two questions. Two questions to ask whether or not this might be an area where you need to make some changes. A, what causes you to lose sleep at night? Elections or election, you know what I mean? Who's going to get voted in or who's going to go to heaven? Just last night, my, my, my favorite soccer team, Liverpool Football Club, lost the Super Bowl of soccer yesterday, okay? Uh, Champions League, lost it, devastated, brutal. Struggled to get to sleep last night. And you know what my thought was? I thought, Lord, I love this too much. If I'm having a hard time sleeping over this, when's the last time I had a hard time sleeping because I've got friends who are going to go to hell if they were to die today? That's an idolatry check for your heart, isn't it? So I had to, I had to reel it back. You know what I'm saying? You've got to reel it back and say, too into it. You've got to detach for a little bit. Some of you need to do that with politics. What does your heart tell you? What is it most consumed by? And then second question I'm going to ask you, what are you most prepared for? And here's what I mean by that. If I brought a liberal person up here to argue about why the Supreme Court should be added to, some of you are ready for that debate. You've been ready. You're like, oh, we can have that conversation. Greg Kelly and Ben Shapiro have been discipling me for months about how to talk about this. I will tear you down. Or if I brought a conservative up, if you're a more liberal person, and I said, this conservative here is going to spend the next 10 minutes, last 10 minutes of our service, arguing about why we need to embrace offshore drilling here in America. If you're a liberal, you're going to be like, oh, I'll have that debate. Bill Maher and, and John Stewart, they've been prepping me for that since the, the W administration. So I can have that debate. But if I brought a couple of your lost friends from college up here and I said, can you explain to these people how to be saved in about five minutes? Would you recoil? If we're more prepared to argue about the kingdom of America than we are to proclaim the kingdom of God, there's a problem in Houston. Our worldview must be biblical, and our hearts must be rightly ordered if we're going to obey Jesus' words in this passage. Give to Washington what belongs to Washington. But give to God what belongs to God. And if Washington's got too much of your heart, then you need to repent. Because your heart's right up there at the top of the list of the things that he wants, and he wants all of it. He doesn't want to share it with an elephant, and he doesn't want to share it with a donkey. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for this country. I believe, as I stand here today, and I don't think it makes me some sort of oppressor to say this, I believe I live in the greatest country in the world. That's by your choice. I didn't choose to be born here to Mike and Debbie Howard in the great state of Virginia. That was your work, Lord. It was your sovereign choice from before time. And I'm thankful for it. And I'm thankful, God, for everything that goes into, um, you know, all, all the positive aspects of being an American, the rights and the privileges that we enjoy and the ability to cross state lines even this week and go on vacation and not worry about any sort of violence, anything. Just what a, what a, what a gift you've given us, Lord. And I think sometimes our love for it is what drives us to want to be politically active and to want to stand for this nation and make it a better country for our kids. There's nothing wrong with any of that. In fact, God, that's part of being a good citizen. And there are times where we have to stand up and we have to, in love and in grace, say, this is wrong. And as the church, we have to tell you this is wrong. We know those things, Lord, but we also know that our love for this country sometimes can cause us to get so politically active that we get consumed and our first love stops being our first love. And our first love becomes maybe this country itself or fighting with people about the future of it. It's got to be you. We've got to seek you and your kingdom first and then all these things are added to us, but it's got to be you. So I pray today is a day of repentance, Lord, if we've been idolatrous in this area and we have let the current events and the ticker going across the bottom of our TV screens and what's on our social media feeds, if we have let it consume our hearts and make us idolaters, I pray that we would smash the idols this morning, that we would repent and that we would recommit ourselves to having a biblical worldview when it comes to government, to rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and rendering to you what is yours, Lord. Thank you for the wisdom of Jesus, but help us to walk in it. We love you, Lord, and uh, I pray that your word will do its work in your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's uh, turn our